Well, good morning. You guys awake? <laughs> it's good seeing you guys. Uh, I'm so glad, I'm so excited about today. Um, as we're wrapping up the book of Acts, we've been in uh, the book of Acts for 39 weeks, and so I hope that you've enjoyed the series. And then, God willing, next Sunday, uh, we're going to start a new four week series through the book of Nahum as we're going to talk about God's goodness and comfort, and also on the other side about God's judgment and God's wrath. So let's look at, if you have your Bibles, let's get into the Word. Let's look at Acts chapter 28. Verse 17, as we're wrapping up our series through the book of Acts. So uh, last week, in the last leg of the trip of Paul traveling um, from Caesarea all the way to Rome, he's now in the last bit, uh, last final stretch of his trip from Malta to Rome. And really what we see is just God's faithfulness to his word. After Paul has traveled for two and a half years, he finally made it to Rome just as God said. And then on top of it, we also see Paul's faithfulness to the mission of Christ, how he made the most of his time, and he made Christ known effectively wherever he could, regardless of his circumstances. And so Luke really has taken us on a remarkable journey. We've been following Paul uh, through all his many travels, as he's, uh, his trails from Caesarea all the way to, to Rome. But when we come to the end of the book of Acts, like Luke does not tell us what happens next to Paul. We have no idea what happened to Paul. We're not sure how long he lived. We don't know how long he was able to minister in Rome unhindered. We can't even be for certain if he, if he made it to Spain or what happened in his trial before Caesar and when or how he was exactly executed and all the events leading up to him. Luke doesn't tell us. He kind of just ends the story. And essentially, when we read Acts, and we read uh, Acts 28, verse 31, it's essentially as, as if Luke is, is ending the book of Acts with a big to be continued. And you're wondering, well, why in the world would he end his book like this? Like, he's kind of been leading us through all these events, and we finally kind of hit the, the pivot point, and then he just drops it and just ends it. And I think maybe the first reason why Luke ends on a big to continue is because we have to remember Luke's original intention in writing the book of Acts. He did not end tend to write a biography of Paul. The book of Acts is not about Paul and his various traveling missions. But remember, the very first purpose and the very main reason why Luke wrote the book of Acts is because he wanted to explain to Theopolis the, the, the continuation of the message, the ministry, and the witness of Jesus Christ by the apostles that he has chosen through the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of them. He sets out to describe for us this unstoppable progress of how the gospel is advanced from, from Jerusalem to Rome to the very ends of the earth. And he kind of ends with this idea of how the gospel is being proclaimed about the mighty king in mighty Rome. And by choosing to walk away from the story where he walks away, he's masterfully putting King Jesus as the center the hero of the book of Acts. It's not about Paul, it's not about Luke, it's not about Rome, it's not about the Jews, but it's ultimately about the king. And his name is King Jesus. And so today, as, as we wrap up the book of Acts and we come to the end of it, 
Uh, we're going to see how Paul keeps on proclaiming uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though the Jews reject him, he continues to keep proclaiming the gospel and continues to spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And really my hope for us today, especially in today's culture, we live in an age of skepticism. I just want us to look at Acts at the end and just kind of marvel at the unstoppable force of the gospel. But then on top of it, like, like hopefully as we marvel at the power of the gospel, as we see all the obstacles placed in front of the gospel, and we see the gospel advancing and spreading, even in times of being unhindered, that we would just kind of marvel at it, but then also kind of take this invitation of participating in this drama of proclaiming the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Because the book of Acts is not done. It's just to be continued until Jesus returns. So, so let's look at Acts chapter 28, verse 17. It says this. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And after they examined me, they wanted to release me since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Then they said to him, We haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we want to hear what your views are, since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. So even though as Paul finds him in, himself in Rome, rejected and mishandled by his very own people, the Jews, what is his very first thing that he does in Rome? He calls all his Jewish brothers to come so that he can talk to them. And notice what, what, what we see in our text. The very, there's two visits. The very first visit happens because Paul initiated that visit. He wanted to kind of tell him his side of the story. And then the second visit was initiated by the Jews because they were curious about Paul's view on, the, uh, on, Paul's view on Christianity. And so perhaps part of their willingness to, to listen further to Paul was because of Paul's claim of innocence. He says, look, I did nothing wrong to the Jewish people. I've not violated any of their customs, and yet they still kept on going after me. They wanted to prosecute me. They wanted me to die because they accused me of violating Jewish customs, and I did nothing wrong. And I'm telling you today, I don't want any vengeance. I'm not holding any grudges against my people. And notice how he refers to the Jews as. He calls them brothers. Like, I have nothing against you. I, I'm innocent. There's, there's no charges that can hold up that's actually brought against me. And then he uses this word. He says, but the reason I'm here and the reason for the chains is because of the hope of Israel. Now, he uses that exact phrase, which was an Old Testament terminology, to get their attention. Because they're familiar with this phrase, and so he sets them up so that they would want to hear more. And, and so notice how the, the Jews respond to this phrase. Two, two, two ways they respond to, to Paul's speaking. The very first thing is they, they claim ignorance of, of Paul's case. Basically, they're saying, look, we haven't heard anything. 
And maybe they haven't heard anything. Maybe because Paul traveled so early in the season that the Jews weren't able to send somebody ahead of Paul to go to Rome to report to all the other Jews of who Paul is and warn them against Paul. Or maybe the Jewish leaders decided, look, technically we don't have any case against them. There's no way that this case is going to stand up in the court of law with the Romans. So let's not even send a prosecutor. Let's just consider it. It's done. He's out of Jerusalem. He's now in Rome. And it's their problem. And so they claim innocence, ignorance. We haven't heard anything. But then they also respond in interest. Curiously, they say, we don't really know much about Christianity, which is ironic because there's a thriving church in Rome. It's important for us to note that before Paul reached Rome, and before we actually, where we read this story, he's already written the letter to the churches in Rome. So we know there are churches in Rome, and it's interesting, they don't know really much about Christianity, even though there are churches in Rome that are thriving, and maybe for the reason why is because maybe they've separated them, that themselves from these churches. But then also very interesting is that even though they are not familiar with Christianity, they've heard about it. Rumors has spread. They said everybody is talking about this sect, even though we don't really know what is going on. And the very first meeting Paul had with them is setting up the very next meeting because they wanted to hear the hope of Israel. And the hope of Israel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is going to do, he's going to take the most of his opportunity and he's going to expound the scriptures and pointing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the hope of Israel. So let's look at the text, uh, uh, verse 23. It says this, After arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. So the very first meeting kind of was a small group was all the leaders. The second meeting in verse 23, we, we, we read there was a much larger crowd that gathered. And this meeting that he had with them wasn't a three-minute gospel presentation or a five-minute gospel presentation or even an hour gospel presentation. Luke tells us how long did this meeting last, from dawn to dusk. A considerable time went by, 12 hours more or less. And, and, and what did Paul do? He explained to these people the plan of God from the context of Scripture as he built on their existing background. And so what Paul did, he, he taught about Jesus and the kingdom of God by using the Old Testament. He used the law. He used the prophets. This is very similar to what Jesus did on his road, on the road to Emmaus, when he spoke to the disciples on the road, expounding about how he was the fulfillment of the scripture from the law and the prophets. So it wasn't just his thoughts and his opinions, but rather him taking the word of God and showing them through the word of God, through the law and the prophets, how Jesus is the hope of Israel. Now, I'm sad that Luke doesn't really tell us exactly what he said or given us a summary other than he talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about Jesus. 
from dawn to dusk. He used the Old Testament. He used the law. He used the prophets. But he doesn't really tell us what he said. And, and so we can maybe imagine what he said, maybe how he was describing how Jesus was the long-anticipated ruler, how he was the true and better David, whose long-awaited kingdom was inaugurated when he came. And then when he returns, his kingdom is going to be fully consummated. Maybe he was contrasting the kingdom of Rome with the, with the kingdom of Jesus that is eternal. Maybe he was talking about the upside-down, inside-out nature of the kingdom of God. Or maybe the fascinating aspect of the already yet, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet fully consummated. But, but regardless of he said, we know that he talked from dawn to dusk. And, and which way did he do it? Look at verse, um, verse 23 again. He says, After arranging a day with them, many came to him at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he, exp- he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. And here's the part I want you to pay attention. What did he do? He tried to persuade. He tried to, con- in some of your translations, it will say, convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. So, so, so the key to really understanding verse 23 and 24 is this idea of persuading. He wasn't just doing a normal gospel presentation, a little PowerPoint, but he was trying to persuade them, convince them by, by, by kind of meeting them where they are, trying to use arguments and logic to get their attention so that something they can understand and something that they could believe in. And whatever kind of persuading he did, we seem, it seems to have divided the crowd. We're in the second part of verse, verse 24 says this, that some were persuaded in what he said, but others did not believe. I, I think there are three things that we can learn from Paul's method of expounding uh, the kingdom of God in Jesus through the Scriptures. I think that if you're taking notes, here's the very first thing we can learn about Paul's method and example of proclaiming the gospel. Is first of all, proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers takes considerable time. It takes considerable time, especially to those who lack the concept of a Christian worldview. I don't know where we came up with this idea that I can present the gospel in two minutes or five minutes or even in an hour. Like, like, like look, look at this. How long did it take him to proclaim the gospel to them? From dawn to to dusk. And I think one of the things we have to understand, we need to get it out of idea that I can simply hand out a track or kind of quickly simply sit down with you in five minutes and explain the gospel to you. Like, like I think we kind of need to get rid of, can it happen? Absolutely. But I think what we have to understand when it really comes to proclaiming the gospel and explaining the gospel from the scriptures it's not a two-minute presentation. It's not a five-minute presentation. It takes considerable time, especially to those who have no concept of a Christian worldview. We, we see Paul doing it from dawn to dusk. We see even Jesus doing it with his disciples. How long did he have to explain the gospel to them? Even after his resurrection, before his ascension, the entire day he proclaimed the word of God to them, showing them how he was the fulfillment of Scripture. And since it takes considerable time to to, to present the gospel and explain it from Scripture, we must be willing to put in the difficult work. 
We must be willing to explain how God created everything beautiful and perfect and how sin sin entered into the world and fractured and destroyed everything. And yet God sent his son who stepped out of into, into this world on a rescue mission to rescue us from sin and from the judgment of God. And we have to explain it. And, and I think what, what makes the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, more difficult today, especially in our time, and why it takes so much more energy today is because people have no concept of right from wrong, of sin, of who God is, or even the existence of God. And this is where we have to be willing to put in the hard work. We have to be willing to to, to even start from the scratch, to build around this framework of who God is and what God has done, and take our time in explaining that to them. We must be patient and willing to do the work. I I think the second thing we, we can learn is this, is that proclaiming the gospel, not by just simply memorizing it, by by expounding the scriptures. How do we proclaim the gospel? By expounding the scriptures, by using the very word of God and pointing them, people, to the hero of scripture. Like if you want to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, use the word of God, the whole word of God. And show them how Jesus is the hero of the story. Again, what did Paul do? What does verse 23 tell us? He expounded, testified about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them about Jesus. And what did he use? The law and the prophets. Basically, he used the entire Old Testament We see Jesus doing this. And what did Jesus use? He used the Scriptures. And so if we have to proclaim the Gospel by using the Scriptures and pointing people to the hero of the Scripture, what does that mean for us? We need to know what? We need to know the Scriptures. We need to know how all of the Scriptures point to Jesus Christ. We need to be able to take the law of Moses and show them how it points to Jesus Christ. We need to be able to take the prophets and show them how it points to Jesus Christ. And I find it really ironic in an age where we kind of want to distance ourselves from the Old Testament just because it's not very palatable for many people. And yet, what scripture did Paul use? What scripture did Jesus use? They use the Old Testament. Well, when Paul says in, in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verse 16 to 17, when he says all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What Scripture was he talking about? The Old Testament. He wasn't talking about the New Testament. And so I think we're doing ourselves an injustice of separating ourselves from the old just because people can't handle it. It's like you're missing more than half the story. First of all, you're missing God's beautiful creation. You're missing the destruction of sin. You're missing the faithfulness of God of promising a Messiah and a Savior to come and to make all things new. 
And so we have to be committed to the Word of God. We have to know it. We have to understand it. And we have to be able to point people to Jesus throughout every Scripture. And it starts with our lives, and it starts in our homes, and among our workplaces, in our communities. And so my question is, if you are a Christian, maybe for how long can you take the Word of God Old Testament, New Testament, every book of the Bible, and show your children or show your husband or show your wife or show your parents or show your neighbors how it points to Jesus and how he's the hero of the story. The third thing we, we, we can learn is, is this. Not only does proclaiming the gospel take time and we have to use scripture in showing them that Jesus is the hero of the story, but, but the third thing we can learn is this, as we expound the gospel to others, it's more than just transferring information. Like, again, look at this, the, this word persuading is a very important word. It's like Paul wasn't just like, okay, here's my PowerPoint, slide one, slide two, slide three, slide four, any questions? No. From his heart and with tears, he was trying to persuade them because he understood was at what was at stake. Eternal life or eternal damnation. As he was trying to persuade the Jews to submit to the only king and his name is Jesus. And so this is what we have to understand when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. It's not just transferring information. It's from our hearts as we're trying to persuade because we know what is at stake. And look at how the Jews responded to Paul's preaching. Look at verse 25. It says, Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, Go to these people and say, you will always be listening but never understanding. You'll always be looking but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And so the Jews, after hearing Paul's word, they disagreed among themselves and they began to leave after Paul made this statement, really quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. And notice how Paul referred to them. In the very first part in verse 17, what did he call the Jews? Look at verse 17. He called them brothers. Okay? He related to them. Okay? But look at verse 25. What does he call the Jews? He says to them, he didn't call them brothers, but he says, whose ancestors? Your ancestors. He doesn't say our ancestors, but he says your ancestors. In other words, the reason why he's saying it is not because he's mad at them. It's not because he's disowning them. But rather what he's trying to do is to show them the separation he has in Christ. Because he is in Christ and they are not now, they are separated. And what separated them? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is saying, your ancestors, 
when the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah and what he said. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, as he talks about hearing the word of God that has to do with the ears and the eyes and the heart. And, and very interesting, uh, this, this, this quotation of this verse was quoted by Jesus himself, by Peter, and it's throughout the New Testament. And so here's the point of what Paul is saying. And this is very important for us to understand. If people would listen to the message and they would act on what they saw and what they heard and understood it with their hearts, they will repent and be healed. But here's what we have to understand, and this is the dangerous part here. Hearing the word of God always has an effect on our lives. This is very important. The word of God is either going to convict you or condemn you. It's either going to soften your heart or harden your heart. There's no neutral ground when it comes to the word of God. The same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. You're either being convicted and your heart is being softened by the word of God as you're responding in favor to Jesus Christ, or your heart is being made hard as you're hardening your heart to the word of God. And here's the warning here. There is no middle ground. For many of you, you might, your heart might not be hard, but it's not softened, and you kind of find yourself neutral. You kind of find yourself indifferent. And here's the warning. When you find yourself indifferent to the Word of God and no longer moved by it, it's not being softened, but it's being hardened. And a hard heart always starts off with an indifferent heart. Eh, doesn't mean much to me. And the more you hear the Word of God, the harder your heart becomes. Think about these Jews. They grew up by the age of 12 memorizing the first five books of the Bible. Anybody have even dared to attempt to read the first five books? We normally start the first one, the second one, and then the third we drop off. They memorized it. Did they know the Word of God? Absolutely. And what was the effect on it? Because they were not stirred by it. Their hearts were hard. And so, so here's the warning to you. Do not sit under the Word of God and be indifferent to it. The danger is your heart is being hardened. So what happens if your heart is not being stirred? I, I, I ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to stir your heart. Well, one of my prayers every morning before I hear the word, before I read the word of God, is not that I would just learn something, but that my heart will be stirred. Because there's no neutral ground when it comes to hearing the Word of God. You're either softened by it, convicted by it, or you're hardened by it and condemned by it. There's no middle ground. So if your hobby is simply to hear the Word of God and never to respond to the Word of God is one of the most dangerous hobbies you can participate because your heart is being hardened and you're stirring up wrath for yourself. And this is what happened to the Jews. And sadly, because of their hard hearts, they were ever hearing but never hearing, 
ever seeing but never seeing, never really understanding. And Paul says, as a result in verse 28, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. By the time we reach verse 28, in the beginning of Acts, the church consisted of all Jews. And the first time, the very first Gentile convert came, came to, 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 to pass, Cornelius, the Jews were trying to figure out what in the world do we do with the Gentiles? How do we incorporate them in the community? And, and so Jewish converts were the norm. Gentiles, they, they kind of were the exception to the rule. And by the time we come to the end of the book of Acts in verse 28, Jewish converts became the exception to the rule, and Gentile converts became the norm. And initially, it started off with all Jews, and then now it became mainly Gentiles. And what that shows us is that the kingdom of God is a global kingdom, is a kingdom that consists of the nations. Look at verse 30. He, Luke concludes the book of Acts, and again, it's, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of disappointing how he just lands the plane. Wish he could tell us more, but he doesn't, because he has a wonderful purpose to it. Verse 30 says this, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's his conclusion. And in concluding the, the book of Acts, obviously we learn that Rome, they're not in a hurry to deal with Paul. They don't see Paul as a threat. And we see Paul continually have visitors. During his time under house arrest, he writes important letters known as the prison epistles. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. In those verses, we, we read about the people that visited him, uh, namely Tychius, Onesimus, Ephroditus. And what Luke show, shows us, that Paul never stopped. He continued to proclaim the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, for many of us, we can read that and we're thinking, well, clearly the Romans did not see Paul as a threat, so they just gave him free reign to do whatever he wanted to do. Or it could be that Luke was alluding to the unbound nature of the gospel, that the gospel triumphed over every worldly and spiritual barrier. And though Paul was in chains, the word of God was not. Though Paul was hindered to where he could travel, he could only be confined in this house, the word of God was not. It was spreading. And consider the phrases that Luke uses as he tracks the triumph of the word of God. Acts 6 verse 7 says this, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and increased in numbers. 
Acts 12, 24, but the word of God flourished and multiplied. Acts 16, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Acts 19, verse 20, in this way the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. And finally in Acts 28, verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here's the point that Luke is trying to make. From chapter 1 to chapter 28, marvel at the unstoppable power of the gospel. Just, just think about this. How the gospel started with 123 rejects in Jerusalem that really was an insignificant city. No one really cared about Jerusalem. Only the Jews did. And now the gospel made it to Rome. And 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later, guess what's happening to the gospel? It's still being proclaimed. A anybody, is, is Rome still alive? No, it's a tourist site. You can pay tons of money to see ruins. Is the gospel in ruins? No. It has prevailed. This is the point that Luke is trying to make to us. Marvel at it. So, so, so here's our application. I'm going to give you two applications, and this is going to cover the entire book of Acts. The first application is this. It's easy to fall into the trap that the gospel has no more power. So our very first application is this. Let us not doubt the power of the gospel. It's, 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 and, and it's easy for us to, to doubt the power of the gospel, especially uh, today. We live in an age of skepticism. We live in an age of moral decline. We live in an age of consumerism. And quite frankly, we find ourselves living with people that are really not interested in the word of God. They're really not interested in the message of the Bible. They're just simply interested in being entertained. Where people look at the gospel and they see the gospel as offensive. They see the gospel as exclusive and narrow-minded. And there's even some people that saying, you know what, maybe we should kind of dress up the gospel to, to make it more appealing to our culture. Maybe we need to alter it a little bit to kind of take the offensiveness out of it, to kind of address our very progressive culture and make it a little bit more inclusive. We find ourselves reading articles about how millennials and, and Gen Zs are leaving the church and wanting nothing to do with Christianity because of the nature of the gospel. They want something that's a little bit more inclusive, that kind of takes all the world religions and unites them together. And we read articles about how the church is dying and the church needs to redefine itself and needs to alter its message. Here's what I'm telling you this morning. Don't buy into this propaganda. Seriously. Do not buy into this propaganda. The gospel does not have to be altered. Yes, the gospel is very exclusive. Yes, the gospel is very foolish. Yes, the gospel is very offensive. But what does Paul say? 
The gospel is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You're like, how can you stand with such confidence proclaiming it? We just read an entire book about the prevailing power of the gospel. Throw persecution in, it keeps on going. Throw a people group that would oppose it, take its, its followers and suppress it. A mighty empire, and yet it prevailed. The church is not dying. Yes, the church is being pruned. And I believe the church is being pruned, and the church is being cut back. And you know why? It's becoming leaner and meaner. It's going to start advancing even more. It's taking all these bench warmers and cutting them out and say, you're either in or out. There's no in between. And again, think about the gospel. Think about the church. The church has endured kingdoms. It has endured empires. It has endured dictators. It has endured world wars. It has endured the rising and falling of the nations. It has endured cultural trends. It has endured pandemics, epidemics, and many more. And now we find ourselves in the 21st century saying, oh, the gospel is being threatened. Oh, the church is under attack. Oh, it's going to die. No. It's going to endure. And so as we read Acts, don't buy into this propaganda. Do not doubt the power of the gospel. As you find yourself, and I, and I, and I get it, there's times that I'm frustrated. There's frustrated that you're spending so much time pouring into people, proclaiming the gospel to them, and then they walk away. There's times when you're discipling your children, explaining the gospel, praying that the Lord will open up their eyes, and they're just kind of just blank stare. Yeah, we find those moments. But it doesn't mean the gospel is not powerful. The gospel radically transforms people's lives. And we claim we hold on to it, we cling to it, and we've seen the evidence of it. It has spread to the ends of the earth. And you know what? how everything is going to end? With Jesus prevailing. So this is what we hold on to. The, the second thing we, we can learn is this. Luke's message in Acts basically ends uh, this. He says, maybe verse 32 should have said this. The book is finished, but the mission is not. Acts 28 is done. The book is done. He's not writing anymore. There's no manuscripts that were lost. The book is finished, but the mission is not. And here's what we can learn, the second application if you're taking notes. We get to participate in the next chapters of the book of Acts. Because think about this. We get to join in in this, this story that started in Jerusalem and taking the word of God and spreading it to the ends of the earth. And until we see King Jesus, the mission is not over. So what does that mean for us? It means we, we keep on fighting the good fight. It means we keep on running the race. It means we keep on enduring, fixing our eyes on Christ, knowing there is going to come an end to this mission. But for right now, the mission is not over yet. And it's not that you have to participate 
you get to participate. The Lord is inviting you in to participate in this great mission that started almost 2,000 years ago. And one day when it's all over and you get to be in His presence, you're going to be with saints from the many generations, from every tribe and every tongue, among the redeemed, worshiping the King of all kings, talking about how His name was glorified and our lives have been transformed. And this is what you get to participate in. There's a sense among millennials and Gen Zs that want something may way bigger than them. Yeah? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's way bigger than you. It's long-lasting and enduring. And even, uh, even under the attacks, and even under all that attempts to alterate it, it will never be altered. It will endure. And this, as we get to the table, this is what this table reminds us of. This table reminds us of the enduring power of the gospel, where men and women from every generation, from all over the world, are gathering and sitting at the same table, proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ as they're eating the bread that rep represents his body, as they're drinking the blood, the, the, the cup that represents his blood, in remembrance of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But it also gives us a glimmer of hope because this is not the real table. This is a shadow. This is an imitation of what the real table, the great wedding feast, is going to look like. And so as we eat to remember of what Christ has done in the past, we also eat to remember of what Christ is going to do in the future to make all things new. And as we eat and we drink, we get to participate. We get to marvel at the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are participants, heirs to the kingdom of God with the mission of advancing the kingdom. And so let me pray for us, and we're going to distribute these elements. And what I want you to do is to use this time to remember and reflect on the power of the gospel. Like, like think about how Jesus has transformed your life. Think about who you were before Christ. Think about who you are now in Christ. Think about how his body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you. But then also think about the great wedding feast that's waiting where we will be sitting in the presence of our King, eating and drinking and feasting and celebrating, where the presence of sin will be no more and the mission is over. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the unstoppable power of the gospel that has the ability to take the worst of sinners the biggest of enemies, the vilest of the vilest, and radically transform them as you've redeemed them, as you've reconciled them, as you've brought them into your family. And Lord, you've taken us, enemies of God, children of wrath, rebels, and you have redeemed us and you have reconciled us and you've brought us into your kingdom and you've made us sons and daughters. 
And we get to participate in your kingdom as heirs to the kingdom. And so, Lord, I, I pray that as we get ready to sit at the table, I pray that as people heard the word, that it would convict them, that it would stir their hearts and their affections for you. May the reality of the gospel set deep root as they think about how you've saved them and what you've saved them from and how you've transformed them and how you've changed them. Lord, I pray that as we meditate upon the future, that that would that cause in us a longing and a hope, especially when times are difficult. The victory that has been won and the victory that is coming. So speak to us now as we get to sit at this table and, and feast. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace in our lives. We thank you for your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, how you died in our place, how you've redeemed us and reconciled us, and you have set us free from the bondages of sin. You've transferred us out of darkness into your light. You've taken us as enemies, and you've made us sons and daughters. And Lord, when we find ourselves doubting, when we find ourselves struggling in our unbelief, Lord, may we look to you and what you've accomplished for us on the cross. May we eat and may we drink in remembrance of you, and may we never forget. And Lord, help us to participate in proclaiming the gospel. Help us to see lives be radically transformed. Help us to see people's hearts being softened, eyes being opened, ears being opened to hear your word so that they may repent and believe. And Lord, help us to remain faithful. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.